It's amazing. 14 years. You've been here as long as I've had my son. Gosh. Well, we're going to be sharing communion tonight. And uh, to ensure that we have an adequate time, we're going to kind of forego our testimonies and sharing a little bit because I, I want to make sure that I get through the, the message. I was praying this week about if I should just forego the message and do testimonies or do it all in, try to get it all in. And so after a couple of days of prayer, it just came down to we're going to do the message and have communion. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We're looking at a few parables. And uh, two weeks ago, we asked the question, is anybody listening? And we studied the parable of the uh, sower and the seed. Last week, we asked the question, is anybody salty? And this week, we want to ask the question, is anybody worthy? All the questions and all the themes do speak to, I think, really significant issues in our lives, most especially as Christians. It's vital that we listen. It's vital that we know and we look and see what kind of hearer am I. It's vital that we... um, Evaluate, evaluate our life and, and see, am I really salty? Am I making a difference? And then tonight, I think it's important that we look and see our underlying motivations. If we're going to be salty, what's our motivation really? And so we're going to look at the parable of the, of the, uh, the uh, mustard seed, you know, faith the size of a mustard seed, and then the, the accompanying parable, which is really the point I want to get to, and that is uh, the parable of the uh, unworthy servants. So, a couple of questions. Have you ever asked yourself or said something like this? What did I ever do to deserve this? Anybody ever say that to yourself? You go, what did I ever do to deserve this? As if there's some sense that we have a right to better. After all that I've done for God. I talked to a Christian one time and this person shared with me that after all that he'd done for God, you'd think that God could come across and answer this one prayer and give him this one desire of his heart. After all that I've done for people, you see, why did this thing happen to me? We have a a sense about our life that somehow we deserve better. Somehow we are worth more. Somehow we are worthy. And that when things happen in our life, um, we wonder why. People say, I give, and I give, and I give, and I give. And nobody seems to appreciate my efforts. I've done this, I've done that, I've been faithful over here. No one notices. No one appreciates my efforts. Or I've given my husband or my wife all he or she wants and I get nothing in return. The focus is always back on ourselves, isn't it? It's always back on ourselves. Nobody recognizes our efforts. Our family, our friends, our people at work, our people in church, they they don't appreciate our efforts. 
We expect, I think, recognition, and we expect rewards. How many can relate to that? I expect recognition. I expect rewards. I mean, if, after all, isn't, isn't that how life is? Isn't that how we're raised up and trained up in life? I think so. I mean, life has its duties, doesn't it? Relationships have their obligations. And work has its responsibilities. That's all true enough, and we know that. But what should we expect in return? What should I expect in return in my relationships and and in my work? Most people love to be loved. Most people give to get. Most people today work to be praised, work to be paid well. Ask yourself if you really enjoy what you're doing, would you do it if they didn't pay you to do it? You just do it for the sheer joy, the sheer love of doing it. Well, some people probably would, but the vast majority of people wouldn't. They wouldn't do it unless they got paid, unless they got paid well. It's part of life. It's a part of how we view things. Whole schools of, of uh, psychology have been built around the idea that a person's personality is shaped and their, uh, their life is patterned by essentially what amounts to be pats on the back. Affirmation, building up, um, behavioral psychology, B.F. Skinner um, taught about the power of reinforcement or the lack of reinforcement in someone's life, the effect that, that, that it has. And we could go on and on in terms of understanding and seeing the power of strengthening strokes in somebody's life. But you know what? There is tremendous power in affirmation, isn't there? But most of the affirmation that's done is done so that we can get people to do what we want them to do. We affirm them in what we think is good for them, what we want them to do. And so we affirm them along those lines. And there's power in that. From childhood, parents... Uh, subtly, maybe not so subtly, have told their kids, I'll love you if they send that message. Maybe not in those words, but there's, a, there's a, uh, an impression made that you're acceptable if, or I'll love you if thus and such happens. I love you because. I'm always fond, when I used to do marriage, premarital counseling and marriage counseling, I would ask the respective partners, I'd say, give me the reasons why you love this other person. Every single time they'd fall into that trap. Without fail. They'd say, well, I love them because, and they'd list all these reasons. Then I'd say, well, now, if they didn't have this, if they weren't that, if they, would you still love them? Can't you just say, I love them. I just love them. It doesn't, doesn't matter if they have green hair or blue hair or no hair. <laughs> I just love them. There's no conditions. But you see, most of us have learned uh, very early on uh, to perform for love, to perform for affection, to perform for acceptance. Just part of life. And the flip side is we expect, we expect that when we perform that we're going to be rewarded. We're, going, we're jumping through the hoops. We're doing what we were taught to do. And therefore there should come some what? Recognition, some rewards, and so forth. Do you think that it's easy then to take that deeply ingrained method or, or way of thinking and project it onto God? That he has these hoops for us? That if we jump through his hoops, he'll smile at us. He'll love us. He'll like us. He'll accept us. Do you? Sure it is. Absolutely. That's what we do as people. A lot of Christians are still living their life that way. We think that 
our goodness will somehow condition His grace. There's this heavenly bank, savings account, and we do all of our works and, and we accumulate all these heavenly brownie points. So when life levels its difficulties at us, somehow we've, we've accumulated this great bank account. It's kind of like karma, you know. You can draw on it. After all, why did this happen to me? I've done such a good job all this time. Why, why am I suffering in this situation? As if now, you know, there's these brownie points should um, relieve us and give us that kind of relief. Well, the parable of the unworthy servants that we're going to look at is a scary parable. It stands in, if you will, stark contrast to what we, how we live our life. Now, here's the key. What is a Christian? A Christian is a different person. A Christian is a brand new creation. A Christian is one who functions on the basis of different laws, spiritual laws. We're different people. We're not just a subculture of the, of the general culture. We are a counterculture. We swim against the stream. We have, I saw a t-shirt in the bookstore that had all these different kinds of fish all swimming in one direction. And they had this one little ichthus fish, you know, swimming in this direction opposite all the others. That's, that's the statement of what a Christian is all about. Our value system is different. The way we look at life is different. The way we deal in the context of our relationships is different. Because we're different. God has made us a new creature, new creation with a new heritage, new perspectives about life. And so this parable is absolutely opposite of what you would expect. Now Jesus believed in and he practiced the power of affirmation. Make no mistake about it. He gives people, you read the gospel accounts, when he, when he engages those people who are close to him, he, he's affirming, he does so uh, because of God's love, not because of anything that they've done that's necessarily earned it. He comes to him, he says, I love you. I chose you. There's great freedom in, in the fact that when someone comes up to you and says, I want you to be my friend. I've chosen you. Come follow me, right? I mean, you know, you're going, wow. He says, I call you my friends. So Jesus does much affirming of people in the Gospels. He affirms us. Those same principles are applied to us too. But he's not just massaging their egos. He's not just trying to get them to feel good. He's doing something very powerful in their life. He's affirming them because of God's love. Because of God's plan and purpose for their life. There's something vital here that I think the, the majority of the church has missed. And we've adopted the worldly view and the worldly motivations, and we end up manipulating people just like the world does, manipulating our own beloved brothers and sisters, because we lose sight of um, this principle. So Jesus affirms. But he does so because of God's love, not because of anything that man has done. Jesus did not teach a system of bartered goodness and rewards. I'll do my goodness and then you'll reward me. I'll do my goods and you'll reward me. And that's how we live life, isn't it? That's how we operate on this plane. We do good things. We expect people to smile at us, to treat us nice. Do something nice for my wife and she doesn't do something nice for me. She doesn't recognize it. I get my feelings hurt. Can anybody relate? Yes, that's exactly the way we function as human beings. But we've been made different now. We're born again. We're new creatures. And we can live our life differently. And I don't need to have my feelings hurt when my wife doesn't acknowledge my good deeds. 
Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10, is absolutely shocking to us. It's shocking. It attacks all of our motivations, cuts into our value system, and shreds it. Absolutely shreds it. Our ways of relating to God and each other are absolutely contradicted. Our ways are contradicted. Jesus is going to teach us a whole brand new way of relating. The context of the passage, very simply, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is teaching his disciples some very hard things. Very hard things. And as he does so, they're now getting an inkling, they're getting a grip now on the cost of discipleship. And when you read what he says about uh, sin will come, but, but woe to those whose lives it comes through. It's inevitable, but woe to those people. So you're thinking, oh man, here I'm a disciple of Jesus. Sin comes through my life and I cause someone to stumble in any way. It's better that I have a millstone around my neck and thrown into the sea. Or forgiveness. When somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness seven times in the same day. Do you know how hard that is? He's talking about impossible situations. Humanly speaking. And in that context, the disciples recognize now what true discipleship is all about. It's impossible. We said last week that uh, uh, the, uh, the thing that we need to understand about Christianity is what? It's impossible. It's impossible. Christianity is not a walk in the park. It's an impossible lifestyle to live by yourself. On your own. By your own strength. So they're recognizing the cost of, of discipleship and following Jesus. So therefore, they exclaim in verse 5, what? Increase our faith. Oh, I need more faith. Jesus, give us greater faith. Have you ever felt impossible to the task that's facing you, that God has called you to be in, God has called you to do, very clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and it's overwhelming, it's impossible to you, and you say, God, increase my faith? Sure we have. But look at Jesus' response in the next verse. If you have faith as small as what? A mustard seed. You see, it's not the quantity of the faith. It's the quality. That's the issue. It's the quality of the faith. And that's what he's going to go and talk about in the next parable. So it takes faith to live the Christian life. But it doesn't take huge faith. It just takes this much faith. <laughs> he said, if you have this much faith, you can command that tree to be uprooted and cast into the sea and it would obey you. You can do the impossible if you had this much faith. <laughs> You're going, what's the trick? <laughs> That's what he's telling us. You see, the whole parable of the mustard seed speaks of the quality of the faith, not the quantity of the faith. Here are the disciples, and virtually limitless power was available to them. Limitless power was being offered to them, wasn't it? You can say to this, and it'll happen. But, though that limitless power is being offered, how should that power be used, and for what purpose? How should it be used and for what purpose? Certainly, an intimate relationship with God would be required. Certainly, obedience is an issue. True. But most of all, we'll see that in their use of that power that's made available to them through that little tiny bit of faith, Their use of that power in extending and working out the works of the kingdom does not increase their status with God one bit. 
It's very important. Is power tempting? Sure. Sex, money, and power, right? The three, the big three things that, 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 that are, are the downfall for so many people. You do everything you get to get, get all this money. Sex or power. See, when you had all the sex and you got all the money, what's the only other thing left? It's power. Power. And people are into having power. But how would that power be used and how would it affect their life? If I could have unlimited power, how would I use it? What would it do to me? How would it affect me? You see, the disciples needed to know that God would never love them any more than he did at that moment. They needed to know that. They needed to be confident of that. The parable of the unworthy servant told them a great deal about God, but even more about themselves. Probably more than they really wanted to face up to. They could never be proud. They could never be self-satisfied with what they did for God as they expressed or as they exercised, as they worked out this power that Jesus said they would do with that little tiny bit of faith. See, therein lies the problem. This is why it's so important, I think, for us to get a handle on the motivations of our life as Christians if we hope to experience and be vessels of God's grace and power to other lives. This is absolutely critical for us. They're excited by what was offered to them. But they had to learn. This is key. They had to learn how to offer themselves to God. To use that power humbly and creatively. This is absolutely critical. That's why Jesus tells the next parable. Read with me. Verse 7. He says, suppose... One of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. What do he say to the servant when he comes in from the field? Come along now and sit down to eat. Now the disciples' response would be, no, heck no. That's absurd. No servant was invited in to sit down at the master's table to eat at the master's table after he did finish his day's work. What he was what he was expected to do was to go prepare the master's meal, clean up, prepare himself, and come and serve the master. And then when all the work was done, then he could go and he could feed himself. And so he tells this parable, and the, and the disciples all understand what he's driving at. Verse 8, would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The disciples would go, no, of course not. He's not going to thank the servant. Because the servant did exactly what he was supposed to do. He did his what? His duty. The master doesn't thank the servant. And the disciples know that. Jesus asked that rhetorical question. So verse 10, now here comes the application. He says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, when you have done everything you were told to do, now that, that speaks to the issue of obedience, doesn't it? Okay? You should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, I don't know about you, but that undercuts completely, totally any, any stand upon which I might think, well, come on now, I, I did a good job. How about some attaboys here? After I've done my very best, all I can say is I am still an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. And I probably haven't done that 
the best way I could do it. Are you hearing me? See, this, this parable, it's through this parable that Jesus absolutely obliterates, in my mind anyway, any basis we have for looking for recognition and looking for rewards. Look at me. Look at me. Look how good I did. Whew, would somebody pay attention? Would somebody smile and say something nice to me? Now, my flesh wants that, right? But I've been told to what? Crucify my flesh. I'm a different person as a Christian. I've been born again. I'm to put on the new man and put off the old. Are you with me? Am I, am I sharing, connecting with you? So after doing our duty, basically verse 10, we have no right to expect recognition. We have no right to expect reward. Think about that for a minute. Whoa. How's that going to affect your life as a Christian? How's that going to affect your life in your relationships, at work? That'll make a, a profound difference. We get two important distinctives from this parable. The first one is this. God owns us. That may come as a surprise to some. God owns us. The earth and all it contains, including us, belongs to the Lord. He owns us. Guess what? He does not owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a thing. He is not accustomed to sending us thank you notes for our efforts. He's not. He doesn't do that. You see, thankfulness is a human response, not a divine expression. It's what we do. Thank you. Thank you. God's not thankful for us, nor our faithfulness. He say, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being such a good husband. Thank you for being such a wonderful wife. Thank you for being such a good person. God doesn't do that. He doesn't send thank you notes. He doesn't have to. He doesn't owe us anything. We think that he'll love us more if we're good. We really do. I mean, who of us have not felt like, God, I've not been good, so God doesn't love me, right? So if you felt that, then the, same, the opposite motivation has got to be true. You think he'll love you if you're better, if you're good. Bless us if we're effective. Care for us if we're efficient. Good stewards, he'll care for me. We promise to stop some habit if you'll give us what we want. Have you ever done that? God, I promise I'll, you give me this and I'll, we trade. We get this little barter thing going. You ever find yourself negotiating with God in prayer? Trying to cut a deal, a good deal with him? I'm serious. I hear it all the time. Because we have this stereotype from the world of who God is and what prayer is all about, that you can cut a deal with God. And people try to do that. Do you ever give money just to assure financial success? Just to assure that you'll get blessed, that you're sure that you'll have extra? Now we, just, we just preached on that, right? A few weeks ago. But sometimes our motivation slips down where we're not giving money because we love God. doesn't matter if we get anything back. But we give it and our primary motivation is to get. It's real easy to slip into that motivation because we live with it every day in the temporal world. God owes us nothing. Whatever we do for him, he owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. Now, I'm not trying to make him sound mean. I want us to understand who we are and who he is. He is not 
some heavenly bellhop. We, and he comes to the table and he serves us. He's God. And we are, as human beings, so smug and so self-satisfied and so into proving ourselves, I think we lose sight of who he is and who we are. After all we do, after all we've done, after all we could do, we still must say we are unworthy servants. We have done only our duty. I do not deserve what you give me. I do not deserve salvation. I don't deserve eternal life. I deserve eternal punishment. That's what I deserve. I am an unworthy servant. Now what I do, I only do my duty. The thing we do for rewards, we should do because it's right. Because it's our duty. Some time ago, I, I get lots of mail, lots of offers and requests. I mean, the stuff that comes across my desk is mind-boggling. And most of it, I just, you know, it just passes right through my hands into the circular file. And this one, this one letter I opened up, it had an intriguing thing on the front. You know, they got your attention and they make you open the envelope, right? Oh, what's in here? You know, you know you're just going to get stuck with something if you bite, but I bit. And it was, a, it was a, a, a course that was being offered on fundraising for churches. Directed to pastors. Pastor, how to increase giving in your church. So I thought, hmm, well, this will be interesting. I'll just read the literature, you see. And it taught, I sent the card away, because it had a 15-day free, free home trial, you know, one of those deals. <laughs> I said, bill me later, send it to me, I'll send it back in 15 days if I don't like it. I sent it back, by the way. But when I got all the, all, the, uh, all the material, it taught how to raise support for the church, raise money in the church, by appreciation. Now on the surface, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Appreciate people, pat them on the back, good job. And it had a whole series of thank you notes that you write to people in the church for their giving. You see, it was based on the principle of people will give and they'll give more when they're recognized and appreciated for it. That was the principle. And I thought to myself, man, that is really tempting. That is re that was buying my flesh was going whoo all right I could write all these notes and you know and sign them and people go oh he pastor wrote me a note he's thanking me for my giving and for my faithfulness oh wow and that would really motivate people to keep giving or to give more I talked to a pastor not too long ago who um, <laughs> he had a guy in his church who was a member one of his elders on the board of the church who lowered his giving and when the pastor went to talk to him about it said is there a problem or can I pray for you is there some, something going on in your business you hit a wall or something he says no he said uh, nobody had noticed I wasn't being recognized he actually said that he was looking to be recognized for giving money to the church as one of the largest contributors to the work. Can you imagine? So I thought to myself when I read through this and I discovered the motivation, I thought, why? Why would God's people need to be coddled, need to be tickled, need to be cajoled, if you will, to do what was already elementary to discipleship, to being a disciple. Why would you have to tickle their fancy to do this? But you see, all it does is it shows, it showed me, and hopefully it shows you how, how worldly methods have crept into the church. 
and how we take a good thing, affirmation, and we've, we've subtly changed it so that we can get people to do what we want them to do. It's nothing more than manipulation. It's not affirmation, really. It's not the kind of affirmation that Jesus affords us. Most churches would absolutely explode with new ministry and mission. Things happening. If, if the church members in those churches just, just would be disciples and follow that one biblical injunction to be proportionate givers. There's no limit to what congregation just gave as a normal part of their responsibility. Just, just for taking up space. If you think about it. So much that is needed in our society is already a part of basic Christianity, isn't it? Think about it. We shouldn't need special recognition. We shouldn't need special motivation for honesty, for integrity, righteousness, justice. And yet we, we give out plaques, we wave the flag, we, we do all these things because some Christian has done some act of justice or kindness. And we build this expectation and we, we bring it in from the world and we say, well, let's be just like the world. Let's give medals and buttons and things like that. Plaques. I actually had somebody a number of years ago come to the church and say they wanted to give a large sum of money, but they wanted a plaque. I said, you go around here and you see if you can find a plaque. If you find a plaque, you let me know. I'll make you a plaque. I said, we don't do that. We believe that, the, that your left hand shouldn't know what your right hand is doing. That you're giving is to the Lord. It's not for men to recognize your good deeds and say, Oh, wow, so-and-so gave. We got this big plaque. Now, it's tempting. It's tempting to resort to that kind of procedure. But it's not godly. It's not biblical. But you see it all over, don't you? You see it all over. Expressing love, forgiveness. These are basic to Christianity. Basic to Christianity. Feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, doesn't warrant a brass band recognition. We don't wave the flag. We just say, hey, people are going to go out and minister. We're going to go to India. It's going to be exciting. You got to go. And when you come back, you know, we're not going to give you a medal. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Would you agree? We've only done our duty. When you got a guy that's on the job, Dar, you're a contractor. You got a guy that's working for you. You want him to do his job, right? And you want him to do it excellently, right? Now, if he's always coming around and say, pat me on the back, Dar, you did a good job. That guy's a pain in the neck. How long would it take before you would set him straight and say, look, I, I'm not going to be praising you for a good job. You're supposed to do a good job. That's your duty. That's your responsibility, right? right? When we've accomplished all that we're supposed to do, when we've done all that we're supposed to do, The routine, just the routine elements of the Christian life. Prayer. Obedience. Faithfulness. Christian love. Tithing. Caring for people. Involvement in the church. Expanding and extending the kingdom of God to every area of society. Just, just the things that are fundamental to the Christian experience. When we've just done those. Guess what? That's only the beginning. That's only the beginning. We've just 
reached the starting line. You said, we've just reached a starting line, having done all of that, fully invested, doing what I'm supposed to do every day faithfully, that's just the starting line? Yes. Yes. Because that leads us to the second critical point that we learn from this parable that beyond duty is delight. Beyond duty is delight. Delight transforms how we do our duties. Let me say that again. Delight transforms how we do our duties. Does that make sense to anybody? Delighting in God? Delighting in God Himself. God, I delight in you. The psalmist says, I delight in you, O Lord. I delight in your law and your precepts and your word. See, delighting in him, delighting in his law, delighting in what he's done for us, it literally transforms how we do our duties. When you delight in somebody, when you really delight in that person, is it a difficult thing? Is it a grievous thing to do the duties of relationship? No. Delight transforms those duties, doesn't it? It makes them a, a delightful experience. We've all heard, I'd climb the highest mountain. I'd swim the deepest sea. And such kinds of sentiments for one who, in whom we delight. Delight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes about our whole new motivation. Write those verses down, look them up later. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Paul says this The love of Christ compels us, compels us. When you know the love of Christ, when you know His love for you and how He delights in you, when you know His love poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, we are compelled. We have a brand new motivation. And our motivation is not rewards, not recognition. Our motivation is love. Delight. I delight in you, O Lord. I love you, Lord. Lord, because I love you so much, I can love this person. Because I delight in you so much, I can delight in this other person who just in in our fleshly relationship is repugnant to me. I can delight in this other person. We want to please God because He has shown His pleasure in us. God, you've been so good. You've been so good to me. I want to please you. The fulfillment of our duties is really nothing more than an expression of our gratitude. Thank you. As I live my life and I fulfill my duties, I'm saying thank you for what he's already done for me. I delight in him and my duties are not burdensome. They are a delight. I need no reward to motivate me. I already have the cross. I already have the empty tomb. I already have the indwelling Lord himself in my life. What more could I possibly want? Some bobble? Some trinket? I don't need anything more. I've got all that I could ever possibly hope to possess. I've got him. And that's what Augustine, the church father, several hundred years into the new uh, into the new church here, 
Augustine said, Give me you. I want you. Give me yourself. For without you, though you would give me all that you've made, my heart would still be empty. See, here's a man who delighted in the Lord. Here's a man who understood that secret. There is no greater joy than fellowship with God now and forever. There's no really true greater joy. There is nothing more exciting than just to get away and get quiet and just fellowship with the Lord. And let Him, just let Him fill your life. There's nothing, nothing that I long for more than just to be quiet with Him and let Him, just let Him have His way in my life. Fellowship with Him. Talk to Him. Learn to hear His voice. That's all that Jesus is teaching here to us. That's all He's teaching. That being a servant of the Master was reward enough. I do my duty, but you know, because of my Master, my duty is a delight. Because He's my delight. He's my delight. Being His servant was reward enough. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 84, verse 10. He says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. A doorkeeper in the house of my God. That sounds like somebody who's delighting in his master. It's a delight to serve his master. Not only will we want to work all day serving him first, but you know, the more you delight in him, you'll find yourself also looking for new ways of expressing that gratitude and expressing that delight. Just the delight of simply belonging to him. Lord, I can't thank you enough. I can't praise you enough. Just belonging to you. Just having you as my master makes all the difference. And when that begins to impact your life, you you look for new ways. And and he opens your eyes to all the different myriad ways in which you can do whatever is laid before you, but you do it because you delight in him as an expression of your delight and gratitude to him. And so we, we say each day as we rise up in the morning, say, Lord, this is Zach reporting for duty. Reporting for duty. And this duty is a delight. When I lay my head on my pillow at night, I say, have I done all that I can? And what was my motivation? Was my motivation to get recognized? Was my motivation to get brownie points? Was my motivation to get attaboys? What was my motivation? My motivation was because I delight in Him and I love Him and He deserves the very best. After it's all said and done, I am still an unworthy servant having done only what I was supposed to do. I deserve no extra credit, no extra recognition. It's just the privilege of serving my master. That's all that counts. Amen? Amen. We teach our kids, you know, you raise your kids, be careful of raising them with the world's motivation. We want to raise them with the motivation. We're Christians. We live our lives differently. We have responsibilities. Oh, there'll be rewards. They'll be in heaven for faithfulness. But our motivation is we participate in the family. We participate in the church. We participate in society because we have a responsibility to do so. But beyond that, but because we delight in the Lord that our duty and our responsibility is a delight.
Careful how you train your kids. Careful how you use motivation and affirmation. Because you just raise them up a whole other generation of legalists expecting rewards from God and trying to perform for Him just to get Him to love them when He loves them already as much as He ever will. Somehow we got to get them over the hump and get them thinking biblically. It's important. Father, we love you tonight. And you are our delight. You have blessed us beyond measure. And we truly are undeserving. We are unworthy servants. Most of the time, we haven't done our duty and our responsibilities. We haven't brought you glory. And for that, we are greatly ashamed. But Lord, thank you that you don't condemn us and you don't frown at us. Thank you, Lord, that you stand ready to give us your Holy Spirit to empower our lives if we would just ask. But you look at our hearts and you know the real motivations. You know the real real issues that are there. Lord, help us clarify. Help us come to grips with what those motivations are. That our motivations truly can be that you be glorified, not us. Not us. For your glory, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to take... um, Oh, we have time. This is great. We want to take these next several moments now to prepare our hearts for communion. And uh, as you know, the ushers will pass the trays down the rows and just hold on to the elements, the cracker and the juice, and we'll come back and all take communion together. Bible says that there's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. Jesus. We had a conversation, my wife and I, with a a friend who's not a believer. We've invited them to church and the wife has come a couple of times. But her son was invited to our junior high group by one of his friends in school. And he came and he heard the message that unless you receive Christ as your Savior, you die, you perish. Well, he went home and he asked his mom and dad, is this really true? If I don't believe in Jesus and if I die, would I, would I go to hell? And of course, they said no, and it's not true, and it's just what those people believe at Hope Chapel. So the mom came and was very incensed. And I said, you know, it's true. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And God became a man, took on flesh to pay the price for our sins. Everybody sins. Everybody sins. And the only difference between you and I is that I've I put my faith, I believed. And because I did, He also not only forgave me, but He He came and lived in me and changed me. I said, I'm not the same person I was. I know he's real. I know it's true. I said, you choose not to believe that the Bible is truly the word of God. But you have no basis upon which to do that. It's just your opinion. You say that Christianity is just like every other religion. It's not. Christianity is distinctly different from every other faith, every other philosophy the world has ever known. But you know, you see people just kind of glaze over and they can't hear. I went away from that encounter and I was very saddened. 
Jesus, we don't know what we have. We don't know what we have. Everybody needs Him. Everybody needs His forgiveness. Everybody needs Him in their life. He came to save sinners. The cracker of the juice. This is the gospel. Jesus' life given for us. He said, this is my body. Take and eat. Lord, you gave your body, you gave your life for us. We thank you that that forgiveness is constant, it doesn't change, it doesn't waver. That even our sins today have been forgiven, have been dealt with finally on that cross. Lord, all you do is acknowledge, or you, you just ask us to acknowledge, not to ignore, not to pretend like we don't sin but to acknowledge and confess that we've sinned and receive that forgiveness fresh again today. Realize it in our life. Lord, you know the condition of every heart. You know the sins that we've done. You know what we need to admit to. You poured out your blood. As we receive this cup, Lord, we receive your forgiveness. Renew our lives again. Refresh us. Give us again, Lord, a new infilling of your spirit and your joy, your peace, your strength. We love you tonight. Lord, we delight in you. We need nothing else but you. We don't need any recognition. We don't need any rewards. Nothing special. And we admit that after we've done everything, we are still unworthy servants, having done only our duty. But it is a delight to have you and to serve you as our master. We love you tonight. To Jesus. Amen. Pass your cups to the aisle if you would, and the ushers would come collect them. Let's sing something different.